just as I was listening and worshiping in that final song, two passages came to my mind that I want to start with. Verses from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We'll just read the one verse. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became living being. And in John, the Gospel of John, Jesus is raised, chapter 20. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And just as we are singing about this breath, this breath that gives life, this breath that gives the Holy Spirit, this is a gift that we're given. From the very beginning of humanity, we exist because of the breath of God. And as Christians, we are given the breath of life, new life, with the Holy Spirit. And this is breath that is given to us as a gift. And as we sing a song about God breathing again, giving us this new life, and as we praise God and thank him for that life, I want to make sure that we take a moment to recognize that it is a gift. And it's not just a gift, but it's an incredible gift. It's something that I know I take for granted. It's the same reason as we gather here as many Sundays as we can, maybe throughout the week as well for weekly ministries. Do we gather just because it's something that we do? Or is it, do we gather because we recognize the gift that it is to live in a place where we can gather together? Where we've gone through fairly recently, a pandemic where we were not able to gather? Do we recognize the gift that it is to be able to come together? And above and beyond that, to be able to gather and worship. To be in a country where we're allowed to worship publicly. And to even be in a world where we can know a God to worship. Already I've just read from God's word, living breathing, and powerful. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. There are other ways that can also happen, but this is the primary way that God has chosen to make himself known. We're able to read through the life of his son Jesus because we have such easy access to scripture. So I want to set the stage and just think, this is an amazing gift that we have. And as we start today, I want to read what I actually planned to read, which is Mark chapter 2, the first 12 verses. So as you flip to that, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to look into the life of your son Jesus, to be able to look throughout history with your people, Israel, their rise, the rise of humanity, and how we have fallen. 
And yet, God, as we read this incredible story, which tells of how you love us anyway, and you seek us down, and you offer us salvation, we pray that you will open the hearts of everyone here. Allow us to grow closer to you. Use my words. May they, may they be from you, powered by your spirit. And open the ears of everyone that is here, whether physically or online. Allow us to grow closer to you. Have an encounter with you today, Jesus, so that when we leave, we are closer to you, changed and different. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, by the power and for the glory of the Father. Amen. Mark chapter 2, the first 12 verses says, A few days later, Jesus again entered Capernaum, and the people had heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, or to Jesus, they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through and then lowered the mat that the man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit, it, uh, in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is God's word. And as I've said, this is how God has chosen to reveal himself primarily, through scripture. And I am amazed at how much of a gift it really is. And at the same time, Something I've been reflecting on in recent months is how, despite the blessing that Scripture is, the ability to open it up, I don't know about you, but take a second and think, how many Bibles do you have in your home? You might have, you know, oh, there's, there's my Bible, there's my wife's Bible, maybe you have kids and they have Bibles. Personally, I mean, I seem to collect them a little bit. I have a handful of different translations. I have it untranslated in Hebrew and Greek still. I have all kinds of different Bibles, and if that fails me, well, I have my phone and I have access to all translations of Scripture. And we can pull, have access to it almost any time that we ever want. And it's a gift, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, because we have such easy access to Scripture, 
I think you can notice scripture memorization is becoming less important in the day-to-day -day lives. People might not even read it. How many of those Bibles that you have, when was the last time you opened one of them? We can take it for granted. We can grow complacent. And that's a danger of familiarity, is that it can lead to complacency. Not only will we possibly neglect scripture, but even when we read a story like this, this is a story I grew up with. This is a story that they would tell you in children's church. And it's something that I've become so familiar with, it can be very easy to just assume what comes next. Okay, yeah, there's a big crowd, they bring this guy, they lower him to the ceiling, okay, go on. He ends up getting healed, whatever. But again, if you stop and you think about it, this is a remarkable story. This is something that is filled with strange moments that would go against the expected if this was the first time that you've heard this story. Beyond the first time reading it in scripture today, think about what would it be like if you were there? If you were one of the people in the crowd, maybe you're fortunate enough to have a front row seat and you can watch all of this happen. There's some strange moments, something bizarre that happens throughout. This is a story that we read in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We read from Mark today. This is uh, written, uh, as tradition says, by John Mark, based on the testimony of Peter, primarily, Simon Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the closest of his friends. And as we read from Mark, there's a couple things that make Mark's telling a bit special, and that's why we chose to read it today. But as we go through this story, I invite you to join me as we go on a journey to try and look at things with fresh eyes, rather than walking in with all of our understanding on what the scripture is like, rather than making this a lecture, making this something with teaching points, I want to invite you to join me as we journey through it, trying to find fresh eyes, as we look at it without any preconceived notions. I have the privilege, as I was talking with Pastor Kristen, to have some very nice, fresh eyes that I get to wear as we look through this. They don't really fit me, but I can use it like a monocle. So I'll do that instead. As we look with close intention at these scriptures, and I know I'm not the only one with these cool shades, and if you don't have one, you're missing out, believe me. So, with that being said, as we jump into a new journey, there's three primary things that I hope that you'll discover as we go through this passage. Three things. First and foremost, we'll see that an encounter with Jesus is something that is worth great effort and sometimes great sacrifice. I also hope that you'll discover alongside me that Jesus doesn't always work in ways that we expect him to. But the third thing, maybe even the most remarkable, is that Jesus can do what only God is capable of doing. So, 
Let's begin this journey as we take a look at an encounter that Jesus has with a man without hope. And I say that this is a man without hope because a man who cannot walk cannot truly live in the Roman world. This is a man who could not farm. He's a man who was unable to build, couldn't be in construction. He couldn't earn a proper wage for himself. This is a time before welfare. This is a time before health care. This is a time before any real formal support systems for those who are unable to pull themselves up and get to work for themselves. This is a hard time, and yet, even if this man were somehow able to earn enough money begging on the corner of a street, depending on the kindness of anyone who happens to pass by, this man still would be unable to walk himself to a market and buy himself food. This is a man who is entirely dependent on the people around him. Already we were talking about Gen Alpha, the importance of relationships. While I think it's definitely true that in a world with technology, meaningful face-to-face -face relationships are important, they're important for every generation. And in this instance, we find a man who would not be able to live without relationships. He is entirely dependent on the people around him. We see that he has four friends, at least, that are required to carry him to Jesus. That's the world that we find ourselves in. And as the story begins, we see that Jesus has returned home. He's returned to, to, to Capernaum, and the people are flocking to Jesus. At this point, he's become famous. This is only chapter 2 of Mark, but remember, opposed to all of the other different Gospels, Mark is fast. Mark is the action version of the Gospels, where Jesus is immediately going from one thing, and suddenly something happens, and immediately he's on to the next thing again. Fast pace. Mark is eager to get Jesus to where he is ultimately going, which is the cross. So at this point, chapter 2, Jesus has already preached, he's teached, he's healed, he's cast out demons. Jesus has gone famous. And now, people who gather to see Jesus cannot even reach him. I imagine it might be a big line of telephone through the crowd, the people in the back just wanting to know what Jesus is saying. And here, with this crowd, we find our paralyzed friend. They're being brought to Jesus with four men carrying him, and they cannot reach Jesus because of the crowd. So as we look with our fun glasses, and we look at this story, I want to ask, what would you do in this context? With all of this crowd, you have your friend, what are you going to do? If you've been around long enough to see me growing up in this church, you would know that I'm an introvert. You would know that I was not only an introvert, I was also homeschooled. So this crowd alone is overwhelming. 
I couldn't possibly do anything in this situation. And yet, I couldn't just abandon my friend either. So what would I do? I would probably wait around. Surely the crowd will disperse eventually. And yet, instead of giving up or letting the crowd disperse, trying again another day, these men decide to do something drastic. They do something unexpected, and I can't help but think, because of what they do, these would have had to be young men. These would be young men who have no real forethought, they don't really think about repercussions. They don't really think about how much it costs to repair a ceiling. And instead, they decide, this house really needs a skylight. And they discover, as they see this crowd and they have their friend, they discover this, that an encounter with Jesus is something that is worth effort and sacrifice. They wanted their friend to have an encounter with Jesus. Because remember, this is why this is an unexpected moment. People don't run around in the ancient world tearing holes in the ceilings. I actually did ask Kristen to, uh, at this point in time, cut a hole in the ceiling, it would be a really great way to show that this is an unexpected thing. She said no. She said it would be funny, but we can't do that. It's not in the budget this year. But think about the rebukes and the ridicule that would come from anyone who would disrupt such an important teaching. Jesus is famous. The people have come to hear him. Maybe they, some have come to be healed, and yet they can't get to Jesus. There's too much of a crowd. You're supposed to wait your turn. Maybe you'll push and shove and try to get your way to the front, but four men carrying another, they wouldn't be able to get through a crowd like that. And yet they decide to disrupt everything in an honor and shame culture facing the rebukes of the crowd. It's believed that Peter, it was his house that Jesus was teaching in. Go figure why Mark is the one gospel that describes the hole in the ceiling. He wants people to know. They cut a hole in my roof. Think about the repercussions. Think about how unexpected it would be. Notice even now, we don't really have interruptions in a Sunday teaching or a worship context. If you, if you do, I mean, you'll prove me wrong, but it might throw me off my game a little bit. But think about even, even some of the more socially acceptable things. We're, we're starting to phase out a little bit of a church that shouts amen. I mean, that might have been something from a little while ago, but even, even some of those things don't really happen anymore. Interruptions are unexpected. And that's why it's called an interruption. They're always unexpected. And yet, when we see this interruption, Mark doesn't describe any sort of rebuke or anger from Jesus. Instead, we see that Jesus looks at this man with love. 
And he calls this man son. So the man is now before Jesus. What do you think he was hoping for? Surely, his hope, as he comes before the healer and miracle worker Jesus, the hope would surely be, this guy can heal me. If I have this encounter with Jesus, this healer, surely I can have a life worth living. I'll be able to walk. I'll be able to work. Maybe I can even do it all on my own. But once again, something unexpected happens. Jesus doesn't heal this man, at least not right away. What does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Of course, after saying something so incredible, the religious leaders, they get up, they start to raise a ruckus. They say, this is blasphemy, for who can forgive sins but God alone? And at this very moment, without realizing it, the Pharisees deliver themselves into the hands of Jesus. Because that is exactly what Jesus wanted the people to see. And this is something that we discover in this story, is that Jesus doesn't always do what we expect. Jesus will work in the unexpected ways. Pharisees are typically seen as the enemies of Jesus. They tend to have a problem with what Jesus is teaching. And a lot of Jesus' teachings actually will take away some of the power and authority of the religious leaders. So it makes sense. But in this moment, they're actually not wrong. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You can forgive someone, sure, but at the root, at the core, when it comes to sin, who can forgive sins but God? And yet Jesus uses this moment as a teaching point to demonstrate exactly. Only God can forgive sins, and yet I can. He does this by asking which is easier, to say that your sins are forgiven, or to say to a paralyzed man, take your mat and walk. I'll admit I haven't been put in that situation before, but if I was, I would think twice before I would tell a man who cannot walk to walk. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. What, what would that look like? It's easy to hide behind words like that, and yet Jesus wants to do something incredible. This is the logic that Jesus is using. You say only God can forgive sins. I ask you a question, and the answer is obviously, it's easier to say sins are forgiven than to, make someone, to tell someone to walk. But right now, I am going to make this man walk and show you that I can forgive sins. That's the logic that Jesus is using. And lo and behold, something unexpected happens. Go figure. Jesus looks at this man. He says, 
get up and walk. And what do we find? He gets up and he walks. The man who cannot walk does. Recently, I was reading um, a, a book by uh, Helen Bond, and she observes how throughout Mark we have the authority of Jesus shown in examples such as this very story. And we see that Jesus and his miracles typically mirror or are very similar to many of the miracles that we see throughout the Old Testament. Where we see, you know, Moses will heal the masses, Jesus will heal the masses. We see Elijah, we see Elisha who are able to raise people from the dead or, you know, maybe they'll give or they'll take a little bit of leprosy. We'll see how things go that way. And we see Jesus who will heal people of leprosy and will raise people from the dead. We also see that each of these people, Moses, Elisha, Elijah, they all do miracles regarding food, whether they give water or they'll give food of some kind. Of course, this is all by the power of God. And the the people at Jesus' time, they recognize these were great men, but the power comes from God. And Bond observes that Jesus does so many of these miracles that are the same to miracles found throughout the Old Testament as a way of showing the same power that was given to these men, I have. There's a reason that Jesus doesn't fly throughout Galilee. There's a reason why Jesus doesn't bring these armies of heaven down and force people to recognize him. Instead, he's showing them through this mirror imagery between the Old Testament miracles and the miracles that he does. To the age where, as the prophets will say, the lame walk, the, eye, the blind can see, and the deaf hear. They're all signs that point to his authority. And we also see, furthermore, for the names that Jesus gives. I'm going to take a second and encourage a planned interruption, which means it's not. I'd love to hear, Jesus calls himself several things throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels. He has different titles that he's given or is given to him. What are some of these titles? Yahweh, Son of God, Son of Man. We have bread of life. Yeah, that's good. We have some of the I am statements, the gate, the vine. We have all kinds. Good shepherd. I like that one. There are all kinds of titles that Jesus has. And in this story, Jesus, one of the ones he often calls himself is the son of man. It can be a little bit tricky. Sometimes it's, well, that's because he's the son of man, I guess, human, sure. And yet it's also a reference to Daniel chapter 7, which is one of the most explicit descriptions of how there will be this figure who is kind of, kind of human and yet also wielding divine sovereign authority. And it's something that's a little bit perplexing, but scholars will say that there's, this is one of the most explicit mentions that Jesus can make about who he is. Holy human, holy God, wielding some kind of power. And yet, at the same time, it's phrased just right where it's not solid proof that would allow the Pharisees to charge him 
and kill him for blasphemy right away. They need a little bit more. But we see Jesus is not only using his actions to mirror the Old Testament, but also his words will point to the authority that he has when he calls himself the Son of Man. So we see this paralyzed man before Jesus, as Jesus is starting to wrestle with these religious leaders. And this man goes from being far from Jesus, being away at the back of the crowd, to being on the front row, watching, but not just watching, being invited in to Jesus' self-revelation about who he is and the authority that he has. Of course, in an interesting way, we also see that this is something that he could not have done on his own. And it's only by grace that he's given such an opportunity. And this is the final discovery that we see with our little glasses as we read through this story with new eyes, is that Jesus can do what only God is capable of. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and he demonstrates this, that he's not just a physical healer, but he's also a spiritual healer. He is our savior. Ultimately, we see that Jesus does this by the end of Mark. Mark is racing through the life of Jesus, and he slows considerably when they get to the cross, because that's what it's all about where we see that all of the signs of his authority that he points to, all of the moments of healing and preaching and teaching, it all ultimately leads to the cross, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, where we see that he will heal not just our physical pain, but also our spiritual wounds as well. We can see how Jesus is far more concerned about the root. This is a relatively short story. Again, it's only 12 verses. And yet it's filled with these twists and turns. It's filled with these unexpected moments that have rich discoveries for us. If we take the time, we slow down, and we read through Scripture with fresh eyes, what will we see? What can we discover? When we see that there are men who are willing to bring a paralyzed man before Jesus, working around a crowd, climbing a roof, cutting a hole in a roof and lowering the man back down, we can discover how an encounter with Jesus is something that's worth great effort and it's worth sacrifice. What does that look like for us today? Do you yourself have a life worth living or do you need to have an encounter with Jesus? What about the people around you? This man was unable to get to Jesus himself. A man without hope needed Jesus in this story. 
What about when the man is actually before Jesus? Hopefully, Jesus will heal me, right? Surely that's what he was thinking, and yet that's not what he gets. He gets, son, your sins are forgiven. That's unexpected, because Jesus will work in unexpected ways. And finally, we can also see how Jesus does heal this man, and in doing so, he's demonstrating that he has the authority to forgive sins. He can make a paralyzed man walk, and he can forgive sins because Jesus can do what only God is capable of doing. And as I started, I described how much of a gift it is that we can know God, the gift that we're even alive, the life that we have was breathed into each and every one of us. And it's the one that gives us life. It's the one who heals our sins. It's the one who's made himself known to us. This is the God that we worship. Will you join me in prayer as we close? As we pray to this incredible God. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. I thank you that we have the opportunity to know you, that we have your word, we have the Bible, God. And I also thank you that despite how familiar it can be to us, it doesn't mean that it has to be something that we take for granted. That you are able to give us fresh eyes to look upon your word and that we're able to know you more and more and each time we come to your word, we get something new. I pray that as we continue to read through scripture on our own time or as we gather together that you will make yourself known to each of us. Draw us closer to you and allow us to share the good news of your son Jesus with all who are around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.